It's time to check in with David Harris. Mr. Harris is a lawyer and a former senior manager at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, and he's now the director of the intelligence program at Insignis Strategic Research in Ottawa. This is a global security consulting firm. David Harris came to my attention years ago uh, as the former manager of CSIS, always willing to speak out on matters of concern to Canadians, and it's a pleasure to welcome him back this morning. David, good day. Hello, Mr. Harris. Uh, James is David. There you are. Gotcha. Thank you, David. Sorry, that's me. I pressed the wrong button. (laughs) Good morning. Not at at all. And uh, in fact, just a bit of detail. I was uh, with the service from 1988 to 90 and collaborated with them well into the 1990s. But uh, that was quite a while ago, and I'm just speaking for myself, of course. Absolutely. And, you know, there are a couple of reasons speaking. Uh, you're a well-spoken and outspoken person, and you wrote a piece for Post Media for the Sun Newspaper Group a few days ago entitled Stop the Coronavirus Incompetence. And that's why uh, we decided to, we're going to get in touch with you after many, too many years of not talking on the radio together. Mm-hmm. But then since you and I have agreed to do this thing and talk about it. There's another story that's come up, this time in the National Post this weekend, talking about, and the headline reads, China's COVID-19 disinformation push, aided by a Canadian group, raises concerns about the next pandemic. And that, and so you and I have corresponded since then and decided that disinformation is, in fact, a very critical piece of a global pandemic because it can be so counterproductive. And here we have in the midst of all of this human suffering and tragedy, David, a massive global propaganda war between China, the People's Republic of China, and the United States. And hoping that... um, we would have an opportunity to get your thoughts on the disinformation process. Have we lost the connection, James? He's it's, here. A, it's very, very interesting. If only in a rather perverse way. Uh, we've seen this movie before, of course, going back many, many years. In fact, the Soviets in the old days in the 1920s had uh, really excelled at disinformation, disinformatia, as they, of course, called it. And uh, in those days, they were trying to convince us that um, uh, they were not the threat that they had been claiming to be as Mm -hmm. revolutionists in that early phase. Um, And so they began what later, by the 1980s, was a well-known tendency to launch peace offensives. And we've seen renditions of this uh, in relation to the supposed uh, Trump collusion with Russia, Mm -hmm. of course, the newer variant of the Soviet Union, I guess. And uh, there the objective appears to be to sow confusion among our ranks so that, of course, we as populations in the West particularly cannot come together, cannot establish an understanding of what the truth is. Instead, we're uh, beset by a whole variety of what these days are fashionably referred to as narratives, Mm -hmm. where you you have your truth, I have mine, and of course, how can you mobilize in favor of a given understanding of reality if you have such confusion? Well, now, of course, 
China, which has, like the Soviet Union and Russia, and in fact, like Nazi Germany as well, studied us and our sensibilities with enormous care, mm-hmm. and uh, now is in a position to try to uh, manipulate our understanding of reality in favor, of course, of the Chinese Party state, the Communist Party dominated China. Mm-hmm. And so in the next stage, almost predictably, is to turn reality on its head, reality having been, as we all well know, that the Wuhan virus is called the Wuhan virus for a fairly good reason, that it originated there, obviously as a result of uh, the uh, mismanagement initially, and then the manipulation by the uh, dictatorship of the then building crisis. And uh, the uh, administration, if I can use the term loosely in China, did not want responsibility for what they had allowed to be propagated, the virus that we are all now seeing disrupting hideously our uh, economics and killing people. Mm -hmm. So what they have then launched into was an international attempt to displace any kind of responsibility, first of all, by uh, trying to confuse the issue of local origination. Suddenly we're having it sort of broadly suggested, if only by a kind of subtle, rather sinister implication, that the central origin of this was, oh, maybe it was Italy, maybe it was the United States, maybe it was the U.S. Armed Forces. Right. It's all completely contrary to every evidence of epidemiologists and other scientists in the hard scientists who study this. The latest news that we have, as you've uh, pointed out to me, was in the National Post, where Tom Blackwell has uh, laid out some of uh, his understanding of an element of the disinformation program that China is clearly with the enormous foresight and analytical prowess undertaken. And uh, this appears in a way very familiar, actually, to people who have known Soviet disinformation from years gone by to uh, um, use a combination of techniques. And one of the main ones is to take a most marginal information source in the West, and uh, in this case, a uh, little-known and some would say highly controversial uh, Montreal-based, as Blackwell describes it, Center for Research on Globalization. Right. I don't know. I don't know to what extent this center has any kind of meaningful existence off the internet, but it's generally recognized to be a uh, conspiracy theorist paradise uh, with some of the most bizarre theories imaginable. And uh, as far as I've been able to make out, uh, many largely unfounded in any kind of regard. So what's happened, though, is that uh, China seems to have found convenient one or two of the more bizarre assertions of this uh, entity in Montreal. They um, reproduce these strange assertions, I guess, blaming the U.S. and blaming others. And then um, on things go so that the uh, Chinese propagandists can claim that this is uh, something that originates among us in the Western world, something relatable, supposedly, because of that very fact. And uh, it goes from there. And in this case, in one of the instances cited, <laughs> and, and this is this is just a classic, in one of the instances cited, it appears that this rather peculiar institute in Montreal itself quoted from a 
Chinese government-dominated source, the Global Times media outlet, right. right, was one conspiracy theory, picked up by a conspiracy organization in the West, and then picked up by Chinese diplomats and uh, other uh, agents of the uh, dictatorship. So it's quite fascinating. And people who may have heard of a fellow by the name, long dead, of Jean-Francois Revel, may remember some of his analyses. Uh, he was a Frenchman who uh, had written about exactly this kind of thing. And he described how a story of an absurd kind, it, as measured against what we used to call the facts, yeah. uh, would begin in some ridiculously uh, partisan, uh, ultra-communist newspaper somewhere in Europe. I mean, like a newsletter, nothing more. And then, say, Italy, I think, was one example. And then it would be picked up by somebody, perhaps even a sympathizer, in a left-wing uh, newspaper getting nearer the mainstream, and then picked up in a more central-left newspaper. And before you knew it, it was picked up, say, in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere by mainstream, maybe even conservative uh, media outlets, thus, of course, ensuring that it had made the evolution as a story from the most uh, recognizably unreliable uh, news source in its origin to what would appear to be uh, an interest or media outlet that would have nothing in common with the actual true source of the disinformation. Interesting. So, uh, I'm yeah. sorry, sorry, David, I, just, I, have to, I have to take a break, but I just wanted to ask you before we go to the break, is China being as aggressive as they are because of the need to save face in the light of the American allegations about the China virus or the Wuhan virus, uh, they they kind of dropped the ball at the beginning, as did America. But China is as being as aggressive with these lies and this propaganda campaign in order to save face domestically or globally. Both. Okay. And that's and that's the uh, the core of it. Uh, of course, we've got uh, an aspiring strategic power here. It is indeed uh, becoming quite uh, demonstrably strategic. And uh, it was moving ahead very rapidly. It was able through charm, money, uh, corruption in the West, it must be said, uh, including in some of our own uh, governmental realms to and business realms to uh, curry favor here. And uh, things were going swimmingly for China in that regard. We were seeing, of course, the former economic powerhouse of the United States beginning to lose a good deal of its force, including militarily, and that deriving from the economic difficulties it's been seeing. So we were seeing a, a shift in global power. And through uh, China's growing economic dominance, not excluding the advantages of a, a good degree of quasi-slave labor and uh, terrible working conditions for its people, we, um, we, uh, we're seeing those trends. And all of a sudden arises this catastrophe. And to the extent that it winds up properly being attached to the uh, Chinese dictatorship, it undermines China's claim to be a benign, cuddleable yeah. kind of entity, right, that we can share our future with safely. Canadian politicians, particularly uh, at the initial outset of this, wasted a lot of time doing politically correct things instead of more medically astute things. That, that's the contention that you offer. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, part of the incompetence that we were dealing with, and maybe that's a charitable way of looking at it. The simple fact is, and everything really boils down to this, that by no later than uh, six weeks ago, we knew if we were capable, and, and I mean the average person, I'm not talking about elevated statisticians, though we relied on elevated statisticians, but six weeks ago, if you could multiply two times the number of people who had uh, contracted the virus in Canada, you would know in what the level of infection would be in four days' time because right. we knew that every four days the thing was doubling. So once you're into that, you would also have had a pretty shrewd guess, as I was saying in the article, that you could, by, say, mid-May, have been dealing with over a million Canadians infected with all of the implications for the number of hospital beds, ICU beds, and above all, ventilators, sure. the life-saving elements we need. And so uh, are we, have we caught up? I, I tend to think in British Columbia, for example, there, there is some evidence to, uh, to begin to feel somewhat comfortable about flattening the curve. They were by no means out of the woods, but in terms of a public reaction and, and participation in a positive way by people literally staying home and helping out, are we catching up? Uh, I, I'm no epidemiologist, but, but uh, I, have to, uh, I have to say that just based on the numbers and trends, and I don't doubt that in time things will be evened out in some way or other, and I don't know what form that will take. But for the moment, I don't think we've got near the worst of it, not even near. And uh, I, I believe that will be demonstrated by some of the horrific scenes we're going to be hearing about in hospitals where some, as they discreetly now say, tough decisions will, be, have, to, will have to be made about who gets the ventilators yeah. and who is to die. So uh, it'll be interesting, though, uh, to see what history tells us uh, has happened. And it will be very important, as I was trying to convey with that article, to have a full forensic examination of how it possibly came to be that, for example, only today, the 28th of March of 2020, we could hear a prime minister say that there would be certain kinds of restrictions on air transport and certainly train transport within our country. And the fact that we've had airliners flowing in from uh, even the most terrible uh, COVID hotspots of the world uh, for weeks into a recognized disaster is something that will be on the conscience of many, but more to the point, we need to have a genuine and proper political and maybe even judicial reckoning of what has been inflicted on this country. David Harris, thank you very much for this. Great to speak to you again. It's been far too long. We must do this again more frequently. Uh, appreciate it very much. Take care. Time to take a look at taxes. And it's, it, I know it's one of the two inevitabilities, right? But it's also been made a little easier this year simply because everything's been pushed around so much. The filing date has been pushed back. There are uh, new uh, personal exemption levels, all sorts of changes, not only for individuals, but also for small businesses. And here to sort it out or to help us all sort it out is Jerry Vitoratos, who is a national tax expert with UFile. And uh, Jerry, Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you today. Thank you for having me. 
Well, you know, let's uh, let's let's sort this conversation into two halves, if we can, Jerry, please, and start with the individual aspects of all of this, and then we'll deal with small business. And I guess it's been made even more complicated, not only by by virtue of the COVID nineteen virus and and interruption of basically every aspect of government activity, but uh, this is caused uh, with the new federal benefits program. Uh, are there taxation realities attached to that as well that complicate things even more, Jerry? Uh, yes. Uh, essentially, uh, when we're talking about the new benefit that was just announced uh, by the federal government, uh, this was this happened, what, what was it, a couple of days ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking essentially the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Uh, so essentially, it's, it's going to be a new EI program or employment insurance program that'll pay uh, up, to, up to $2,000 a month for the for, uh, for up to four months for those who have lost their jobs or have lost uh, income due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what's, what's not obvious uh, in the announcement, although they do mention, but just a, a slight mention, is that the benefit will be taxable. Oh. So this will actually be income that you will have to declare on your tax return uh, in 2020. Obviously not for now. Sure. We're, we're still in the, in the 2019 tax season. But in 2020, though, this will be a taxable income. And, of course, there will be taxes withheld at source when you're getting this benefit. Uh, so f- so for that benefit, essentially, it's not, it's not just free money, right? It's not quote-unquote free. I mean, nothing's really free when you think about it. Right. But this is not going to be free money for those who are going to be receiving that benefit. Interesting, because I had heard you that uh, in fact they had reconsidered the taxable notion because it wasn't all the all the money in the world in the first place and every penny of it is needed that there had been some discussion behind closed doors about well maybe we should take the taxable aspect of that uh, new benefit off but clearly that hasn't that decision hasn't been officially reached yet no, no, clearly no. I mean, every if you go to the website right now, it's still mentioned as a taxable benefit. Okay. Uh, even as you refresh the pages uh, on that on the website on the on the uh, economic response plan, it still mentions it as a taxable benefit. And just remember, EI is always a taxable benefit because they're they're putting it under the employment insurance program. So that's usually a taxable benefit. And if if the government decides to make it non-taxable, that would be a a huge cost to the government. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, uh, there is discussion right now. You're right. Uh, there has been whispers that we've heard around. But as of right now, no new updates. It, it will be taxable. So that's, a, that's an important thing to remember then. And I'm, I, you're right. The tax filing that we're about to talk about here is all about last year. But in the process, it's important to remember that while we're applying for various federal and provincial aid programs, that, uh, that those benefits will be taxable this in this tax year. But most of the taxes will be withheld by government, Jerry, so that if it, ultimately it may end up, because you've had tax withheld and you've received the benefits, you may in fact, by way of a rebate, get back the re- withheld tax next year. That's true. I mean, obviously, whatever you uh, remember that that an income tax return is really a reconciliation statement, right? What you're doing is you're figuring out whether you've overpaid tax during the year or you've underpaid tax right. during, during the year, and that's what a refund is, right? But at the end of the day, remember that those taxable benefits might affect other calculations. So, for example, when it comes to the GST credit and when it comes to the Canada Child Benefit, these amounts are based on your uh, net income. So the more income you make, the less of those benefits you will collect. Uh, 
So that's where, and that's kind of like the sneaky tax that happens when you when you increase your income. So, for example, if you get a raise at one point, you might say, "Hey, that's great. I've got more more income. I will pay a little bit more tax on my tax return, but you're actually paying a lot more tax because you're losing benefits on the other end as well, like the GST credit and the and the Canada Child Benefit." Interesting. I wanted to ask you about HST. It's not something that comes up as often as GST. Jerry, how much money do you have to make as a gig economy worker or freelance? or call it what you will uh, on a personal basis before you become uh, eligible or before paying HST becomes mandatory? Okay, so as a, uh, as a self-employed individual, are we talking about the remittances now? Exactly, yeah. yeah. As a How much can you make before you, become, before you must start paying HST? Uh, normally, it would be around the same. Uh, it would be around the same amount as on the federal side, which would be around thirty thousand within twelve calendar months. Okay, uh, that's usually what, uh, the, the the threshold that where you have to start actually uh, paying back the remittances. Essentially, the, whatever you collect as a business owner, whatever you charge as HST, the moment you cross over the thirty thousand threshold within a twelve month period, that's when you have to start really, uh, you know, start re- collecting and remitting to the government. Although there have been breaks on that uh, with a recent announcement. Exactly. Let's talk about some of those recent announcements, Jerry, because number one on that list for a lot of Canadians, and this goes back to 2019 and the taxes we're gathering our receipts for and putting the paperwork together to file, the filing date has been pushed back from the usual April 30th to, is it June 1st or July 1st? It's actually June 1st. Okay. Uh, so that's when the new uh, tax return filing deadline is. So it's essentially an extra month, essentially, is what it is. Mm-hmm. So the government's giving us an extra month. Uh, the key date, though, not just the June 1st, uh, the key date as well, though, is also August 31st uh, or September 1st, depending on, uh, on, on the release, where, you, where you, any amount owing you have on your tax return would be owed. And the good news there is that, is that uh, there's no interest or penalties that will get charged up until that date. So that's good news for somebody who owes money. Oh, I see. Okay, now, for somebody who has a refund, I'm going to be honest with you. These dates are really meaningless for somebody who, who is owed money by the government. Because essentially, whether you're filing June 1st or, or later or whichever it is, if the government owes you money, there are no penalties or interest because they owe you. Right. So my recommendation to everybody today, and then just a little thing that I want to add in there, is you know, file now. Don't don't wait. Just because the government has delayed the date, if you're getting money back, we all know that how many people are right now are in a cash crunch as we speak. Sure. Please file your return as soon as possible. And of course, the other uh, reality, Jerry, to, re- to remember in the course of doing anything with the government of Canada, let alone any of the provinces, is that they are absolutely overwhelmed right now by this new crisis, by all of the new benefit programs, by just really uh, ad-libbing on the fly. And so anything you can do to help yourself by getting the paperwork to them uh, early or as quickly as you can is simply going to get that rebate back to you a little bit sooner. Yes, absolutely. So we know that right now with Service Canada and with the EI applications, they're completely overwhelmed. Sure. Thankfully, I don't believe it'll be as much the case with the CRA because they're, they're used to having that, that, this kind of crunch uh, where they're getting a lot of returns at the same time because they're used to having deadlines. Sure. Well, Service Canada is not used to that. They're used to just getting uh, applications spread out uh, throughout the year. Uh, the other reason to file uh, quickly, it's, you, may, you made a very good point there, the other reason why you want to file quickly is for those benefits. Uh, it's for the GST credit. It's for the Canada Child Benefit. These benefits are based, like I mentioned before, on your net income. 
The only way the CRA knows what your net income is is by filing a return. So if you want to not have any delays on those amounts, and, and actually with the economic response plan, they're actually increasing those amounts. They're giving you a one-time payment in the month of May. If you want to get those benefits as quickly as possible and to have the, the CRA calculate them properly, file your return ASAP. Right. So the, the current data that they base any benefits or potential benefits is, is, uh, is real and, and, and it reflects your current circumstances rather than a year ago. It's actually based on your 19. Actually, it's actually based on your 2019 return. So it's based on your previous year's net income. That's the only way they know. Yes, it is your current situation because that's the last tax return that you filed with the CRA. So, you're, so that's what they need. They need that, that income tax return to determine what you're entitled for those benefits. Right. So that's why it's so crucially important, whether you owe money or not. Even You might say, oh, well, I've got till June 1st. Remember, you got till August 31st to pay. So nothing prevents you, even if you owe money, to file now just to make sure that you're getting those benefits in time and you're getting the, and you're getting them as soon as possible. Jerry, just before we move to the small business aspect of our conversation, you mentioned something a few moments ago and I wanted to just follow up on it. I mean, you talked about getting a raise and, and 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 you see the paycheck after the new raise and you go, well, I'm supposed to be getting a whole lot more money than I'm actually seeing on my check. Uh, you could very well be a victim of something called bracket creep. That raise just popped you up into the next tax level. And so all you've done really is make yourself eligible to pay more taxes. A raise has to be a significant amount in order to see some money in your in your in your pocket after taxes, doesn't it? Yes. Um, the moment that raise, uh, it's exactly what you're saying, that, that bracket creep, is that the moment that raise basically gets you over that threshold between one bracket to another. Yeah. Well, every extra dollar you're making will get charged the new tax rate, right? So let's say, for example, you were at, uh, I, I, if you look at the federal brackets, you were around, uh, let's say, f- around 47000 is the first bracket at 15%. If you get a $2,000 raise and you were making, let's say, 46, well, not 48, that $1,000 gets charged 20.5% uh-huh. instead of the 15% that would normally get charged. So yeah, absolutely, and, and, and it's beyond just, just bracket uh, creep. It's also what, what, what I mentioned as well with the benefits. The moment you go, uh, up, the moment you you start making more money, not only are you being taxed more, but you're also going to get less benefits because they're based on your income. So unfortunately, that, that's a little bit of an, of an inequity in the tax system and the benefit system of Canada, unfortunately. So if you're going to get a raise, yeah, shoot for the stars and try to get as much as you can. Absolutely. As if we needed any incentive to, to go out and, and bargain hard for ourselves. Jerry, let's talk about small businesses. Now, we knew uh, long before this uh, the COVID-19 pandemic struck and government was compelled to do um, a benefit to programs and, and react. Even before that, we knew that and, and the there were changes to CPP and EI contributions for business owners already announced prior to, to the COVID-19. Yes. So there was uh, essentially we're gonna, they were increasing the amount. The, essentially what they were trying to do, especially with CPP, was uh, to increase the replacement factor of your, of your working income, right? So normally CPP is designed to replace about 25% of your, uh, of your uh, peak working dollars. So, so during your peak working years, uh, CPP was designed to replace about 25% of the peak working years okay. up until a certain maximum. So the government 
had set a, had set the maximum at around about sixty thousand dollars. Now what they've done is they've increased that amount essentially in order to replace it is from twenty five percent to thirty three percent. So of course that means essentially more contributions. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is essentially what it means. So for any amounts gained beyond the threshold of CPP, which is again I'm just just off the top of my head I'm thinking about it, it's around sixty thousand dollars. Okay, anything above that then there was a small percentage extra contribution that all of us had to make, including employers. Because remember that a CPP is half employer, half employee. That's the, that's the way the contributions work. Sure. So every dollar that you put in as an employee, your employer puts in another dollar. So, so essentially, they wanted to increase that replacement factor because, again, they're looking at the future right now. They're looking at the trends in personal finance, and they're worried that a lot of people will not have enough to retire on. That's the, and CBP being mandatory, while well, they can at least ensure that there's a base, there's a base income that, uh, that uh, Canadians can have when they retire. I see. Okay. And, and uh, so uh, in addition to those changes, which small business owners were sort of trying to wrap their heads around, and then along came this global pandemic and a host of new programs introduced by the federal and in some cases here in British Columbia, provincial governments, and that's been replicated at the provincial level across Canada. So as, as a small business operator, what are you looking for these days in terms of taxes and benefits, especially, Jerry? Okay, so essentially, uh, you know, if we look at the, the, the last announcement that the government had made, which I believe was, was Friday, was the, was the last announcement, there's a few interesting tidbits for small business owners, okay? There, there's quite a few benefits that they can get. Okay. Okay, first things first, the, the subsidization of wages. So, that's, uh, so they announced up to 75% wage subsidy for qualifying businesses. Now, we don't, we don't exactly know the full definition of a qualifying business yet. Uh, we're still waiting for that announcement. They said they would come up with it in the, in the next few days. Uh, so essentially, the, the, the federal government, retroactively, as of March 15th, will subsidize the wages of small businesses up to, uh, uh, up to an amount of 75%. So that's quite a big help for small businesses, because, of course, we know that there's a lot of layoffs right now. Yes. A lot of these businesses are shut down because of this pandemic, while at the very least... If, you, if they had to make that tough decision of laying off certain workers, well, they don't have to lay off some of these workers anymore because of that subsidy. Uh, what the government has also announced as well, uh, another benefit will be an interest-free loan uh, of up to $40,000, which they call the Canada Emergency Business Account. So that's another benefit that they can get for any company that has a payroll of less than a million dollars. Jerry, as I understand so, as, and, as I understand that particular loan program, you're, you can borrow from the feds up to $40,000, uh, of which... Ten thousand is forgivable, so you can actually get forty and be responsible for paying back thirty. Yes, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It is up, but it, again, what they say, and we have to read the language what the government uses. They say up to ten thousand dollars. Okay. Right? Okay. So we have to be careful. We still don't have the details yet, but yes, you're right. In theory, right now on paper, uh, one uh, one fourth of it will be forgiven, essentially, of the, of that debt, and thirty thousand will be uh, payable, and for now, will be interest free. Okay, for for uh, for essentially, I believe it's going to be for a year. Uh, but again, we're 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 still waiting for the details. But remember to read the language, okay, whenever they make these announcements, and they, they clearly write up to 10000 Yes. So we have to be careful there. So hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll go ahead and give the 10000 right away. Uh, otherwise, it looks like it's at least 25% of that loan will be forgiven. Okay. 
And Jerry, a quick question, kind of a random question for you as, we, as we're closing our, our conversation. Back to uh, taxation uh, on a personal level. Now, we have a, a provincial program where a tenant can apply to the government of British Columbia to have his or her landlord receive $500 from the provincial government uh, in, to sort of offset missing rents, which of course are due this Wednesday. Uh, uh, is that $500 payment to the landlord from the province of BC taxable to the landlord, Jerry? I, I don't believe so. I don't believe it would be taxable uh, in this scenario. Usually these, these kind of payments would, would not be taxable on the return okay. that I'm aware of at least. Okay. And are there, uh, there will be uh, federal programs, but they, uh, as you pointed out already, do come uh, taxable and also to the payee, they come with taxes withheld. So you get a net amount that uh, excludes any taxable uh, um, monies, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, because it's taxable right now, they've already announced that there will be a withholding at source, which is normal. You know, you don't want to get that huge tax bill at the end, uh, at the end of your, of your tax return, uh, when you produce your tax return. You don't want to have that huge bill, right? So that's why there will be a, a withholding. Now, will the whispers and the rumors come true and will they make it non-taxable? We'll see. Uh, well, as of right now, they haven't said that yet. I would doubt it. I'm going to be honest with you because it's an EI program. I would be very surprised if they made it uh, non-taxable. Sure. Uh, however, uh, as of right now, yes, there will be a withholding at source. So that $2,000 they're announcing, that's gross. That's not net. Again, that's the key with reading the language uh, directly on these things. So, so you have to be very careful when you're reading these announcements from the government. All right. And Jerry, a final takeaway for anyone listening this morning. The, the big bit of advice from Jerry Vitoratos is file your tax uh, stuff for 2019 ASAP as soon as possible. Get the government your paperwork pronto, correct? Yes, absolutely. Just just remember uh, what I said right now. Whether it comes to benefits or whether it comes or whether it comes to your refund, okay. These uh, in order for the in order for the, the government to pay these timely uh, in a timely fashion, you need to file your tax return. If you have a refund, these new deadlines are meaningless. They mean absolutely nothing. You are owed money by the government, and just like anybody else who owes you money, go and get your money. All right, Jerry Vitorados from UFile. Thanks very much. We'll pause for the news. The Prime Minister's uh, daily update is coming at eight fifteen. You'll hear it right here on CKNW. A Victoria-based clothing shop has seen a spike in sales despite closing last week due to concerns over COVID-19. This after Alberta's chief medical officer wore one of its dresses during one of the COVID-19 briefings that Dr. Dina Hinshaw conducts on a daily basis in Edmonton. She wore a gray dress featuring the periodic table on one of her TV appearances last week. Uh, This item apparently has been a, a top seller at Victoria is the Smoking Lady Boutique for many years, to the point where all of a sudden there's an enormous demand for this product. The owner of the Smoking Lady Boutique is Trish Tacoma, and she joins us this morning. Hi, Trish. Hi, nice to meet you. Well, it's nice to meet you too. And we also want to just take a second and thank you for being an awfully good sport. Oh. Trish Trish was oh, going thanks. to be Can I just make one correction? Of course, though? yes. It's 
It's smoking lily. Oh, I'm sorry. Not- I, I said smoking gun, didn't I? And it, and it says smoking. No, you said smoking lady, but. Oh, my. And I have, I have it written <laughs> right here. Lily. Victoria's The Smoking Lily Boutique. So my apologies, Trish. Okay. Tell us now, Dr. Dina Hinshaw has actually been a longtime customer of yours. She, in, in fact, during her, she appears as regularly in Alberta as Dr. Bonnie Henry does here in British Columbia. Every yeah, day exactly. she's on doing yeah. this, this wonderful update to the people of the province and she has quite a few fans as dr henry does in bc mm-hmm. and dr hinshaw in in edmonton is a fan of the smoking lily boutique that's true yeah she's been a long time customer and it's been nice and oh like about 70 percent of her broadcast she is wearing smoking lily clothing mm-hmm. so are these original designs of yours trish do you collaborate with other designers or are they all right out of your head they're um, out of my head and our company. We um, design and manufacture everything in downtown Victoria. We've been doing this for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so they're all made locally. We hand silk screen all the fabrics in-house and then cut and, design- and uh, sew everything all under one roof. So interestingly, how did you respond? This is the because Dr. Hinshaw, uh, and I've seen many of her updates, and she's very good. She's as good as Bonnie Henry is here in BC. So, and, yeah, and she has a quite awesome. a, quite a following, as does Dr. Henry. Uh, but you know, I watch the the updates, and uh, I see that uh, as a result of this particular dress, a gray dress, and I saw her. I saw the update the day she wore it, actually, uh, and, and features the periodic table. It's uh, now you've had such. A, a demand for this this particular dress, and you're closed. So how are you coping with the demand <laughs> and, and and an opportunity to well, ad- advance the the smoking lily boutique here? So on um, so last week Monday we closed, and on Tuesday she wore the dress. Yeah, but we had closed. Um, we cl- in the morning we closed our retail stores, and by the end of the day we had decided to close our manufacturing. Um, arm of it, but keep open the mail order, the online business. Mm -hmm. And um, so Tuesday, late afternoon, we started getting emails from customers saying that Dr. Hinshaw was wearing the dress. And it was by, you know, eight o'clock Wednesday morning. It was just insanity over here. And we, um, so we had actually have not been manufacturing that dress for at least six months. And we figured out a way that we could actually produce a hundred of them. Oh my. And I know. So it's pretty awesome. It's like, there's usually eight of us working in the studio, but we've to be safe. We've managed to get um, maximum three people can work in the studio at a time. Uh, Just with all the distancing requirements and so on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, we ordered the fabric. It was lost in for a few days this week, and I finally tracked it down on Thursday, and uh, we printed a mountain of fabric. And then yesterday we cut it, and we sent it off. So our sewers are working from home right now. Oh, okay. So we sent it off to our sewers, which is really nice that, you know, a few of the sewers have industrial equipment at home. And uh, so they're being sewn. They're starting today, actually sewing those 100 dresses. And we're hopefully by Tuesday, Wednesday, we can start mailing them out. 
So, but then we also got have a, ma- a waiting list now, which is my next problem to deal with. <laughs> is but we've got a waiting list of over five hundred people wanting the dress. So. Uh, that one specific model of that, dress. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember seeing it on TV, and thinking it was very clever, and uh, you know, it looked nice and everything. But I thought with the periodic table and all the rest of it, it was just just really yeah. clever. So it, yeah. you have you. you you've been able to, as we are here at CKNW, we have some of our hosts working from home. Some of us come into the radio station again yeah. due to obvious uh, COVID nineteen yeah. guidelines. But you're able to, and I guess the good news for you, in addition to the popularity of your designs, Trish, which is always gratifying, but it, you're also able to make make uh, work now for some of the people who were laid off just a few short days ago when you decided to close down the manufacturing end. These people can work from home and still make some money. That's right. That's been um, uh, very, the little silver lining there for some of our staff, which is really great. And are the orders, because Dr. Hinshaw is Alberta's chief medical officer, are most of your orders coming from across the province of Alberta? Or because so many Canadians see these uh, medical officers across the country, are the orders coming from across the country? They, uh, they started coming in from Alberta, and then in B.C. there was a large an, uh, amount, and now I'm seeing it right across Canada, the orders coming in, yeah. And, of course, this is nothing but good news from the point of view of a it small a boutique owner in That's Victoria. Right. That's right. Now, you have a Vancouver retail outlet, which is also closed at the moment, but you do have yeah. one here and, and one in Victoria, too, correct? That's right. We have one on Main Street, Main and 21st. Okay. And then one in downtown Victoria. So now if people are still interested in in following up on this and would like to compound your manufacturing problems with even more orders, (laughs) what's what's the website? Where would you direct our listeners to the Smoking Lily Boutique? Our our, uh, email address uh, where you can write to is info at smokinglily.com. Or you can just go to smokinglily.com and check out our website. Okay. Well, uh, we wish you considerable success with this, Trish Tacoma. Uh, thank Dacoma. you very much. It, it, it's a very interesting sort of sidebar story that I'm sure you were probably more surprised than anyone else in the country at, at this, oh, this whole thing. Yeah, I was so surprised. It's been such a gift to us. Yeah, it's been really great. Well, uh, our, our wish for continued success to you and, and all you. the team at Smoking Lily, Trish. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks for your interest. It's the last Sunday of March, and uh, it's a time uh, in which uh, all sorts of things across Canada are literally upside down, inside out. It is a time of uh, a national pandemic in which all of us are forced uh, to do different things, to react to, to different things differently, and to try to adjust on the fly. And I'm looking now at a press release from Employment and Social Development Canada, dated last Thursday, uh, with the minister's signature at the bottom. And let me just quote a couple of lines. During a time when we're asking most Canadians to stay home, we need to make sure our service delivery model follows the best public health advice while also meeting the needs of Canadians. At this time, this is Thursday, we'll be closing in-person Service Canada centres. Let me be clear, Canadians will still be able to access their benefits. The best way to apply remains online. And they give the address and it goes on. Here to talk a little bit more about this is Chris 
Crystal Warner, National Executive Vice President with the Canada Employment and Immigration Union. Crystal Warner, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning, and thank you for having me. It's very kind of you to uh, readjust your schedule. Uh, Crystal was supposed to have been with us uh, at 8.15, and the boss uh, showed up instead, so we uh, uh, asked her to defer for uh, a few moments and join us now. We appreciate your flexibility on this, Crystal. Talk to us about, first of all, how many members of your union are involved in this closure across the country? So uh, we represent about 17,000 Service Canada employees. Of those, about 3,500 are working uh, in the front-facing Service Canada Centre offices. Okay. And how long has it been going on behind closed doors with respect to concerns by workers uh, being expressed to the minister and his staff to the point where closure became necessary? So we were um, probably about two and a half weeks leading up to the closure announcement last Thursday. We had been having various levels of discussion with the employer, both at the departmental, at the ministry level, expressing our increasing concerns for the safety of the public, as well as our members working in those offices. So probably a good two and a half weeks. Are there other uh, departments of the Government of Canada, Crystal, that you're aware of this morning, whose uh, workers have also convinced their minister to close down temporarily? Well, prior to Service Canada's announcement, I know that Veterans Affairs had also made a similar decision uh, the week prior. Um, So uh, from what I understand, there were other areas that have already taken those measures. Uh, And in our situation... Um, situations of violence, unfortunately, um, a lot of um, safety concerns were occurring that weren't occurring in other departments because of the heightened emotions around people trying to apply for employment insurance. Uh, so we felt that our situation actually was the most risky. So, um, so we, we welcomed the decision. Yeah, we, we're hearing the word overwhelmed a lot these days, Crystal, when it comes to the Canadian government because of the announcement of all of these various programs to assist uh, Canadians who are deprived of incomes, who've been laid off, whose businesses have literally been closed and so on. So much of the uh, people, or many rather, of the people working for, the, for any government department are literally uh, besieged these days by requests from Canadians just looking to get connected to the benefit programs, correct? Absolutely. Um, we, in, like in employment insurance at Service Canada, we still haven't recovered from the Harper era cuts to the public service. So our staffing levels already weren't where they ought to have been in order to be serving Canadians in a timely way. So we, you know, when this happened, you could appreciate that because we were already overstaffed, our employees in processing trying to, you know, desperately put Canadians into pay, they were already doing 20, like in Vancouver, they were already doing 27 hours a week in overtime each. So they were working their full week and then doing 27 hours of overtime on top of that already in the months leading up to COVID. So yes, we were absolutely, we've been understaffed for years. Um, and unfortunately, the situation has just brought that into the forefront. Uh, Crystal, uh, we're, you, you said you represent approximately 17,000 individuals, 3,500 of whom are frontline workers in those Service Canada centres that have been closed. What about the other 14,000 workers that you represent? Are they uh, presumably still going to their places of work and dealing with these overwhelming uh, numbers of applications for various programs? 
So the other workers that we represent at CEIU include uh, the employees at the Immigration and Refugee Board right. um, and, the Im- and the workers at uh, immigration, immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. Um, the majority of the immigration workers that are doing non-critical work are working uh, virtually from home at this point. Um, and that uh, ministry was able to do that in a relatively timely way. Uh, the IRB in particular was pretty quick to say, look, uh, this is not a safe situation. Let's send folks home. Sure. Uh, but, but Service Canada, because of the nature of the work and uh, the critical services that we do deliver, uh, it, was, it, was, it was slower to respond. Interesting. Now, Crystal, the, just to, to compare the two, do the immigration, the process of Canadian immigration does involve from time to time uh, appearances by applicants for landed status or work visas or whatever the, the situation may be. Are all of those immigration related uh, per, personal appearances now on hold? Yeah, for the most part at this time, they are on hold in limited situations. Uh, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. Uh, we have come to different agreements with the employer to ensure that there's a contained environment where in-person interviews that are still necessary would take place. Uh, but they are they are limited at this point. Otherwise, they are on hold. And uh, uh, the or, uh, other unions that work uh, with the government of Canada, what is the sentiment? For example, now we're starting to see from the people who uh, work in the corrections system. That's a different union, I understand, but you're all aligned with the same employer, ultimately, Crystal. I wonder what you're hearing, for example, about workers in the corrections system who are uh, equally concerned about exposure and so on. That's a situation that literally can't close, though, isn't it? For all of our sister unions uh, that are working uh, in the federal public sector, we're hearing the same concerns that we've had, um, except with the unique difference of the the volume and the pressure that's being put on Service Canada. Uh, But everyone is sharing the safety concerns, the lack of uh, protective equipment, uh, you know, short staffing as a result. So everyone is feeling the struggle right now, for yeah. sure. We've seen, for example, in the supermarkets, uh, Crystal, we've seen some very fast changes. For example, uh, there are now protect- mm-hmm. protective uh, uh, plastic barriers between the uh, the uh, the clerk at the till checking your groceries through and you with a little hole for you to put your, your, your card and pay the money. Uh, the barrier has been erected. Is the government of Canada, to the best of your knowledge, working on similar short-term remedies for service Canada centres in order to reopen them in quick fashion? So we have been requesting those measures for years, <laughs> and uh, we have not seen action on them. We have seen a lot of resistance on them, uh, despite the fact that situations of violence in service Canada centres is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the employer is unwilling to take those measures. And so... For us, even just getting security in the offices last week was, you know, a lot of a lot of struggle. Um, so the steps just weren't being taken for whatever reason. I can't speak to that. The employer would have to say why sure, they were not putting those measures in. But we were certainly advocating for them. Even just getting gloves took over a week. Sanitization was an issue. Uh, they couldn't get people in to clean the offices, which, you know, some of that was beyond their control. Sure. Um, you know, struggling to get security. We've been asking for the plexiglass for, for those measures to be put in place, but it wasn't forthcoming. And so at some point, things got so dangerous with clients coming in and throwing chairs, throwing pre-L stations, police having to be called in so many offices because of fistfights. 
Um, a guy in the Nile last week started swinging wood around for some reason at the office. Like it, it got so bad uh, because of the, the heightened emotions that are occurring um, that we, you know, I don't think that they had another choice Interesting. Um, because the measures weren't being put in place. Well, there seems to be an awful lot of money being made available to remedy a lot of situations for Canadians. Perhaps the uh, members of Service Canada and uh, with those frontline workers and their requests might, with some of that loot, uh, be finally looked at. Crystal Warner, we thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is going to join us to talk about two almost completely different topics. First, we're going to talk about caremongering, and then we're going to talk about the $2 trillion bailout package the United States just arranged over the past few days. Our next guest is a political theorist and postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communications at the University of Ottawa, a frequent contributor to Maclean's Magazine, a columnist for the Washington Post, and the author of... Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones, which came out about a year ago. David Moscrop joins us. Good morning, David. Thanks for uh, taking the time to join us today. Good morning. My pleasure. Well, it's good to have you with us. Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. You wrote a piece in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago entitled, In Canada, an Inspiring Movement Emerges in Response to the Coronavirus. And you go on to tell your Washington Post readers about caremongering. Tell us what you know about it and where you found out about it, David. Well, I found out about it from someone who emailed me my editor and said, have you, have you seen this? <laughs> and, uh, I, and I hadn't. The, move, uh, the, the news moves so fast right now, it's sure. hard to keep track of, of hardly half of it. But uh, the BBC had reported on it. That was the initial story, and it had been a movement that started in Toronto, uh, and it had very, very quickly taken off around the country, where uh, numbers of people in cities, but also as, as local as neighbourhoods, had created groups on social media, uh, particularly on Facebook, uh, that were known as caremongering groups. And these groups were meant to coordinate citywide or, or even neighborhood-wide efforts of mutual aid and support. And I thought, okay, well, it's a, it, on the one hand, it's a, a quote-unquote nice story. It's uplifting. But there's also a moment to say, what happens to these in the long run? Can we sustain them? Yeah. And should these have to exist in the first place? Well, they're spontaneous reactions, very human reactions. Uh, the fact that we look to each other for support and guidance and all the rest of it in times of crisis uh, is, uh, is it's kind of a, a human reaction. But we've, we've gone one step further, haven't we, with this, this caremongery, David, because it's organized. And it is because of social media that this has come together as rapidly as it has. Yeah, I mean, social media is a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. We we consistently are reminded of the dangers of social media. Uh, At the moment, for instance, we're seeing a lot of nonsense being shared on social media. We're seeing a lot of predatory behavior, but we're also seeing a lot of people use it as a tool for mutual aid and support. Right. And I I hasten to point out that, uh, as people pointed out to me, groups like racialized groups, disabled communities, and so on, Indigenous peoples have been relying on mutual aid and solidarity for a very long time. It's not as if we discovered caremongering right, right, of course. In, in March. We just sort of rebranded it. But it, it has been spontaneously for, for, for many people uh, arising and effective. And it's been coordinated, I think, in a new way for a lot of people. So people are coming to the party finally uh, and seeing the value of it. And again, it, this might be a forum for helping people 
sort out issues. People are cooking meals. People are asking for things. People are offering things. Uh, uh, goods and services are being distributed. People are being checked in on. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different uses that have popped up. And it does represent the, not, the more encouraging side of, of social media, but also of human uh, care and ingenuity. No question about it. We had uh, Isabel McKenzie, the seniors advocate for British Columbia, on the program yesterday morning, David, and she was talking about 211, which is the new province-wide uh, number for seniors to call to do precisely the sorts of things that the caremonger movement is doing for lonely, isolated individuals, particularly seniors, who would appreciate a phone call, a, 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 some kind of human contact. How are you doing today? Everything all right? Do you need anything? Uh, this is a line that the province has now established, province-wide. It used to be just here in the Lower Mainland only. Now it's province-wide. So as you were talking about earlier, David, there's a sustainability factor to all of this. It, it's it's come out of necessity. It's spontaneous. It's a wonderful story of kindness and, and that sort of thing. But you're right. Will it uh, and because now government has sort of rolled into this here in BC with two one one for certain elements of the population, seniors. Do you see a future for this sort of caremonger movement going forward beyond COVID nineteen? I mean, I, I should I should hope so. I mean, I think the question is whether or not we see it becoming a mass sustainable movement rather than a sort of a community based movement for a particular group right. who have long practiced it. Well, I, I would hope to, I, I, as I said in the piece, I think to some extent these things will always have to exist because government can't take care of every need, and we probably don't want it trying to take care of every need. We want community engagement. We want community connection. We want community action. The, what we need is government support. So 211 is a great example of that. And, and, in fact, the prime minister just a little while earlier was announcing money for a kid's help phone. That's and, correct. Yeah, uh, another seven point five million. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So there, so there are some some encouraging movements, but of course, when I'm talking about bigger long term structural support, I'm think I'm talking about things like income support. I'm talking about adequate access to health, including dental, vision, mental health. You know, these are things that we need to structurally support communities. By Because keep in mind that, especially right now, a lot of the folks that are taking on this labor, this mental and this physical, uh, emotional labor, mm-hmm. are vulnerable themselves. So, you know, these aren't uh, uh, wealthy. This is a, a, a baronic uh, effort. It is an effort of the people who are themselves struggling, who are trying to support others. So, so when we say it's mutual care and solidarity, it is peers out there who are trying to get through this themselves, who are also helping others. And I think the question is, you know, should they be asked to double down on their own risk, on their own labor at a time when it's very difficult to do so? And I, and one, I did an interview, one person said to me, you know, we're putting our, ourselves on the line here sure. and we're trying to get through the day. We need governments to back us up. So it's worth looking into to the the needs that are not being met that are forcing vulnerable people out there to go help others. Exactly. And I'm quoting now from the, the, the closing line of the piece that you wrote in the Washington Post about can- caremongering in Canada. The caremongering movement is an inspiring, bright spot in dark times. Even brighter still would be not having to rely on mutual aid so extensively in the first place to just reinforce the point you were bringing home. And, and looking forward out of this movement, might it result in an infrastructure structure, a community infrastructure that isn't there now. 
Well, it certainly might. I mean, one of the things I say in the piece is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing myself. <laughs> I haven't read it since I wrote it, but um, you know, this is a critical juncture. Nobody asked for this moment. Exactly. Nobody wanted it. It's a tragedy, but it's also a critical juncture. It's a moment at which we have a decision to make about how we want to do politics now, but also how we want to do politics six months from now or a year from now or five years from now or a decade from now. Sort of like the Black Death uh, in Europe refashioned feudalism and led helped contribute to democracy, this moment is going to contribute to something. And we have a moment right now where we can decide what that what that's going to be. And my argument is it ought to be a more uh, just, economically and socially just system of, of national, provincial, and municipal support. Well, there's lots to work with uh, and will be even more by the time this uh, crisis finally passes. The bailout industry is on the brink of failure. So in order to prevent a full-on catastrophe, we're setting aside $2 trillion in order to bail it out, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, adding the business of giving massive sums of money to corporations so they can cover their losses is at the very bedrock of the U.S. economic system. And without a The entire bailout industry as we know it could collapse, which could lead to another Great Depression. Our guest to comment on the $2 trillion bailout is Washington Post columnist David Mosscrop. That was Mitch McConnell's assessment after uh, a few days of uh, political shenanigans and uh, uh, the the attempts to uh, include a few pet projects by various legislators. Ultimately, the president did sign the bailout legislation just Friday. Uh, Is it enough, David? What's your take on this massive package? Well, first of all, I was a little bit surprised, in fact, at the ease at which it was passed. I mean, when you control for the fact that it was passed in the United States of America. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there was, um, talk about shenanigans, there was a particularly uh, egregious last-minute effort by a Republican congressman from Kentucky who tried to hold a recorded vote, which required a bunch of legislators to go back to Washington. But all in all, it actually, for, for an American piece of legislation, passed fairly quickly yes. and without too much acrimony. So that was moderately encouraging. Uh, you know what? I, I have to say, I, I was sort of modestly encouraged by it all in all. I mean, the, of the $2 trillion American, about 560 or so billion goes to people directly. Yes. Uh, cash and otherwise, cash and unemployment insurance benefits. Um, and then about $500 billion or so goes to corporations, and the, there are strings attached. I mean, that, those, these are repayable loans, and there are some limits on stock buybacks. Uh, this is, you know, companies are sort of, big companies, infamous for taking money from the government and then using it for stock buybacks. Sure, yeah. Uh, which they're not meant to do this time for uh, the period of the loan plus a year. So uh, I would say, given the, the range of what is possible in the United States, this actually represents not such a bad outcome. And is it going to provide the uh, the rescue capabilities that the legislators who have authorized these funds, David, hope it will? In other words, I mean, you've got, an, you've got an airline industry, for example, not just Boeing, but the entire airline industry in the United States is literally uh, gasping. Uh, and, and that's only one sector of that in, in incredibly vibrant economy. Is, is there, are, are there enough funds to help enough of the, comp- the sectors of the economy that matter? I doubt it. I, I would imagine that this is the first of, of, well, more than one pieces of legislation 
uh, certainly at the federal level, and you'll see action at the state level, and of course, I mean, to some extent, the municipal level, although the federal levels where most of the heat is. But Mitch McConnell himself said it. I mean, this isn't stimulus. This is emergency relief. Yeah. So this is a first effort to try to control the bleeding. And then we'll see where it goes. And for instance, in Canada, we had an initial package about 10 days ago, 11 days ago or so. And then we had a second package just last week. And so you're seeing that this is an iterative process. And part of the reason that that's happening is, I think as a lot of people will tell you, is at this moment, speed beats perfection. Sure. You know, what you need to do is move fast to get something happening both to get money out into the economy and to stabilize, but also to send some sense of confidence or some sense of relief to people uh, so that we can all, uh, you know, take a minute, step back and see some reason for hope and some reason for optimism. So I think I think the, the Americans like us have responded to that by saying, OK, we're going to do something fast and we're going to figure it out as we go. And. Again, I think that's the appropriate approach. Right. Now, the president places an inordinate amount of emphasis on the stock market. He tends to see it as a barometer of his performance. And, of course, the stock market has been on the proverbial roller coaster ride for the past couple of weeks. A bit of a rally for a couple of days consecutive last week looked a little better. How do you think uh, tomorrow? It's difficult to predict. I'm just asking, <laughs> asking for a thought here. How do you think the markets are going to react to this? And I agree with you, by the way, it's probably not the last of provisions to be brought forward, but it's a significant first step. Do you think the markets will respond positively? They usually do. I mean, of course, the markets often anticipate these things. You know, but when we're seeing things rise, it's the anticipation of action, not always just because of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would imagine they will. Uh, I mean, again, I'm not checking my RSP day-to-day, if you know what I mean. Sure. <laughs> it's it's not a good thing it. to do, no. no it's not. <laughs> not these days. Uh, everyone, just, you know, I mean, I don't even go anywhere near it, as modest as it is. I don't, I don't want to see it. But I, I would imagine the initial response will be favorable. But if the president thinks that he can get America out of this by chasing day-over-day stock market jumps, he's, mm-hmm. he's going to run out of printing presses to print um, treasury notes pretty fast <laughs> you know it's going to it's going to it's going to be rocky for some time it's going to bounce around a long time and, and i think there's enough smart people reliable reasonable people in the world who know that you can't live day by day by the jumps and the, and the falls of the stock market um, the, of course the president won't be one of them right exactly well again uh, to to your point and, and uh, final uh, remarks from you if you could uh, to the fact that the canadian government has responded with one and now a second one in terms of efforts to relieve the pressure the financial pressure on so many million canadians you just multiply that million canadians by 10 and you've got the number of americans equally in distress so it's about speed it's about expediting cash to bank accounts as much as anything else and that uh, uh, will uh, take precedence over getting it flawlessly perfect the right time out. It really will. And there's also the administrative side of that is, is you know, for once we have to very, very, very seriously look at our, our administrative capacities and, and realize what the limits are and how we can uh, um, increase capacity fast. Because, you know, you can have all the good intention in the world, but if you can't actually support it by getting money to people because you don't have the infrastructure, what are you going to do with that? No, so the, 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 the test will be in uh, the next few days. David Mosscrop, thanks for this. We appreciate your taking some time to be with us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. My pleasure. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.